about a month or so ago, I was asked to give a sermon dealing with various evidences over whether or not we can even trust the Bible as the inspired Word of God. And so as time went on, I was considering, you know, how would I go about answering that kind of a question and deal with the subject matter? Do I take all kinds of evidences from all sorts of areas and and what have you, or do I just kind of focus in on one illustration? And that's kind of what I've decided to do using the flood that's recorded in Genesis chapter 6. And we're looking at it from a standpoint that when we talk about the Bible and, and look at all the different stories that are there, this is the most heralded, the most fascinating, the most popular, if you will, on a worldwide scale. I hear stories like, or reports from people saying there's about 200, then 250, 270, 500 different accounts regarding the flood. And then, of course, the variations and, and what have you. That's just amazing to hear of these things. That's so popular. And yet, with all that's going on, you know, up until, I'd say, about the 1800s, many just believed in that literal understanding as given in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. But over the last 150 or so years, we're seeing a growing population looking at the Bible story, the flood, in Genesis 6 as mythological. And I have to say that, brethren, sometimes we don't help the situation in our Bible classes, particularly in the children's Bible classes. Because you've got this nice picture of these animals looking out the ark. Everything's just wonderful. And it makes me think of someone who referred back to the Precious Moments Bible. It was a terrifying thing. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about judgment on mankind. And so it's unfortunate that we have a growing population that views it as mythological. And, and when we look at the, the flip side, naturally you would assume that every single Christian, those who believe in Jesus Christ, would inherently believe the account. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but now what we get into is this interpretation of these things. And so you're having even Christians go from this literal account to something maybe a little more broad, more like a story with a good message, that serves as a nice shadow for the end time and the judgment to come and lose the biblical authority that is founded within these passages. And so with that in mind, what we're looking at is understanding that these stories are more than just quote-unquote stories. Feel-good principles about God's love and, and the rainbow and what have you, but looking at the judgment. Mark mentioned this morning about sin. So we had this judgment. The world was full of sin, Genesis tells us in chapter 6, the first few verses. All of mankind was corrupt. And of course, when you look at these kinds of stories, whether it's the resurrection of Christ, people rising from the dead, the sun going back so many paces, whatever the stories are, you can't believe in the Bible, right? Because none of these things can really happen. Or we start justifying some things and minimizing some things regarding the stories and, and how we would understand them. And we use standards of man rather than the standard of God's Word 
to shape our beliefs. And I'm no different. Every one of us in here can be persuaded and persuaded by various teachings when we lose sight of the Bible being our one and only source of final authority. And so we're looking at the example of the flood this morning as hopefully by looking at such, answering that question, can we in fact trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? And the thing is, for a number of us in this room, you're going to say, well, I don't need this. I simply believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And like you, I would agree. You know, when I became a Christian, I never once, the morning I became a Christian, said, wait a second, can I even trust this book? And there are people who look at me, well, Mitch, wouldn't you have asked that question before? Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose anyone that we can read of in the first century, like the eunuch, Cornelius, and everyone else, ever said, well, is that writing? Is that really God's Word? Or did you Jews just accept it? If they did, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. We don't have any recording. And I would venture to say most of us in this room never thought before becoming a Christian in asking whether or not we can trust the Bible. And so for, you know, I can just imagine two sides going at it. Well, the one saying, I'm a Christian, I never thought about it. You know, you need to have more faith, you unbelievers. I just readily accept it. And the mature Christian would think that way. And then the flip side of someone saying, well, listen, how do you know that that word is no better than the Vedic scriptures that have been around thousands of years before what we call the Bible? Scriptures from, from India, if you will. Or the Chinese writings or the Sumerian writings that were around long before what we have as biblical writings. And so, who's to say that this book is any better than the other? And we should challenge all things. And so that person... Their mindset is saying, well, from a mature standpoint, we should question everything. Well, hopefully this will answer it from both sides. And from a standpoint of looking at this, knowing we have Bible authority for the things that we do, and that, that Bible authority starts from the book of Genesis. So, what we're looking at then is that evidences. And I believe when all is said and done, these evidences won't prove anything to someone who's not looking for the truth found in God's Word. I don't think I'm going to persuade anyone's mind who is outside the body of Christ saying, well, I don't necessarily believe that this Bible is the inspired Word of God. I do believe there are those who are looking to say, well, is this the inspired Word of God? And, and I come across, across various evidences, and I'm trying to keep things real simple this morning, and then say, well, you know what? I can see that as probable. Maybe a high probability. But the bottom line is, you're either going to believe this is God's Word or you're not. That's what... We're ending with when all is said and done. And so I want us to look real quickly at this Bible account, and then we'll move into some extra biblical information. So this is going to be somewhat an unorthodox type of a sermon because we're only starting off with minimal stuff here from the Bible. And the first one we're looking at is in Genesis chapter 6, and we're hitting some highlights just so that we jog our memories, if you will, on the flood account. So when we read the first few verses, Genesis chapter 6, it says, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So, God is intending now to judge mankind. Well, verse 8 through 18, and we'll only look at verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a man perfect in his generation. And as a result, we see that through Noah and his family, that it's his sons and their wives, along with his wife, they were the only ones that would have his favor. We go further in the text, and we read from verses 19 through 22 where it says he took animals, birds, and creeping things, each of their kind, and food. Go further in the text. The fountains of the great deep burst open. It says, and the heavens opened up and fell 40 days and 40 nights. In other words, it rained. A great torrential rain. But the fountains of the great deep burst open. Then we go further. Since the waters prevailed over the mountains 15 cubits and prevailed 150 days, somewhere around 20, 25 feet. Now, I added that picture just for illustration purposes. That's what it would look like for some, because there are brethren that I've talked to over the years, one in particular that said, well, is it possible that it was a local flood? Well, that's what a local flood would have to look like if, if the waters were above the tops of the mountains. And, of course, the mountains don't have to look up that high. Uh, the mountains of old could have been lower and, and so on and so forth, but that's all up for opinions and debates and what have you. But that's a picture of, of the high hills and water going 15 cubits above it if it's localized. Naturally, it's not possible for that to happen unless God wants the wall to be there like the parting of the Red Sea. That's the picture that we have otherwise. And after more than a year, in the second month on the 17th day of the second year, Noah leaves the ark. And after they leave the ark, he makes sacrifice to God. And after he sacrifices to God, chapter 9 tells us in verse 1 that he blesses Noah. And of course, we have the rainbow covenant given in that text as well and meat given for food, so on and so forth. So what you have is this biblical account says this is what has happened. Now, many today would say, how is that possible? I mean, that story is so far-reaching, why should we even believe in this book? I've read comments all this past week of people just saying, can you believe people would be so dumb as to read these words and not come away with anything but a rejection of the Bible? That's how people view it. And it affects those who proclaim Christian beliefs. It affects our whole view of God's Word from the very beginning. And the foundation is questioned when the biblical account is denied or even questioned. And so we have that biblical account, but we also, just as was read 
this morning have the 104th Psalm, verses 5 through 9, that talks about what God had done in the beginning from creation through the flood. We can read the Apostle Peter and what his statements are regarding the flood as it pertains to the coming and impending judgment. We can read it in, um, it's supposed to be 1 Peter chapter 3, not Second uh, Peter, but you can read in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well, and, and you can read of this impending judgment. Or Matthew chapter 24, we have from verses um, 37 to 39 where Jesus says, just as in the days of Noah, judgment's coming. The Son of Man will return. So you have various accounts. And the thing is that Jesus referred back to this account. Peter referred back to this account. The psalmist referred back to this account. And this is what we have within the Bible. When we go outside the Bible, there's a lot of accounts. It's said that um, many believe, various scientists, that the biblical account of the flood was taken after the Sumerians. And I don't know how, because I'm not smart enough. But some scholars then, after all their scholarly work, they said, well, we find more and more evidence to say that the actual writings in Hebrew were independent of the Sumerians and their view of the account. Well, whatever that means, what we have is all kinds of accounts. And I apologize, this list is too small, uh, particularly on this wider screen, for you to read this. But basically, you go from the beginning of the account in Genesis 6 all the way to the very end in Genesis 8 and going into Genesis 9. And that's what you have on one side, the biblical account, here in this middle column, and then the account of Gilgamesh, Epics of Gilgamesh. Here's a king from past uh, Sumerian uh, kingdoms, if you will, and this was found on the 11th tablet in this library of one of those kings. And within that library was this account of the flood. And when you look at it, it just goes down almost perfectly from point to point, just like the scriptures. Interesting. And this is a writing that was hundreds of years before what we have penned by Moses or whomever during the days of which Moses lived. And so what you have is, is a great illustration of similarities. But they're not the only ones. Chinese have their own book of history. It's called the uh, Shijing. And in this book, it's called the Book of Documents. And what you'll read of is their version of their history as a Chinese people. And it includes in that this border sacrifice, if you will. And in this border sacrifice, you have emperor who was worshiping Shangdi. Shangdi is a heavenly ruler. That's what Shangdi means. This Shangdi was one god, not gods that they would worship today, but one god. And when you look at their writings, it goes back and it's just like reading Genesis chapter 1. I mean, very, very similar in its account. And you go into some of the other writings um, beyond the recitation by the emperor in worshiping Shangdi. And you have the Feng Shu Tungyi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct. But in this writing, centuries later, you actually have writings about this great flood. Now, some historians will doubt this because it's interspersed with 
mythological type stuff, like people living so much longer and, and what have you. But interesting that when they're talking about this great flood, that their people descended from this person named Noah. Sounds pretty close from an English standpoint, hearing Noah like Noah. But very much similarities in the document that you can read from Chinese history. And of course, you can get into some of the Chinese characters that people that, you know, they learn the language, they're scholars of these type of languages and ancient uh, languages. And here is one of many illustrations that are given. In fact, there are books, various books written about the Chinese language as it pertains to Christianity. But here is one of the words for boat that came from these three words, vessel, aid, and people, and put them all together in that word boat. Interesting. That when you do a little bit of language history, that you have some similarities, in fact, very close similarities to the book of Genesis. And so what I'm saying is that, you know, when we look at individual evidences, people say, well, you know, that can be proven away and proven against, and here's an alternative. But the fact remains that as you mount evidence after evidence after evidence, pretty soon you look at all of them, and it's a pretty compelling case. And there are many of them. We're just looking at just a few from stories around the world. Again, you can go on to all kinds of nations. And in this chart is just a sampling of many of those nations that give you their version of that biblical account of the flood. Imagine Hawaii. And you have Nu'u, that hero that was saved on this boat with a house on top of it. And you have all kinds of other stories that are very similar. And of course, while time goes on and the oral tradition fades away, so to speak, from a standpoint that you lose some of the detail, to think that you have continents and every continent having various nations and within those nations these various stories of a great flood. In fact, you can go to India. Remember when Sri Lanka had the tsunami? Was it 2004 or something? I forget when it took place, but just a few years ago. People that lived on the coastline talked about the story of a great flood and the past civilization that would live there. And people would never listen to, to these people because the stories seemed ridiculous. And they would talk about these cities just off the coast that used to be there according to their stories. Well, remember when the tsunami hit? There are eyewitnesses that said, we saw city-like buildings, if you will, as the water went down before the tsunami came. And so they're having people saying, well, we need to start listening to these stories a little more closely. Maybe there's some actual substance to what they are saying. Various things like this all throughout the world that, fill up, that follows that account. We can look at geological type information, and again, this is a lot of it is over my head, but the things that I can understand, I'm happy to share. But when we're looking at these accounts, one of the things that has been newer in the geologic scientific community and not accepted by many of the standard scientists, those that are accepted in academia world, are these polystrate fossils, they're called. And that is when you take a fossil and it is in such a manner that it crosses various sedimentary layers. And actually, with the view of evolution, you've got 
over millions of years, various layers settling down. Sometimes there were destruction and what have you, but the whole point of this was that you have something like a tree that you'll see in the middle of the picture that's been fossilized. And here's this tree cutting through various layers that if it were to take a uniform, uniformitarian is the word, approach to sedimentary layers, that it would take various, various millennia, if not millions of years. But here's a tree that if it were to be from that standpoint, it would have had to rot it. It have to decay over that long period of time. So something happened for that tree to be buried. And then you can look at all kinds of these forests, if you will, of trees all around the world. Of course, there's some in Ireland that are most popular that you'll just see them all over the place. Some even with roots attached to them. Some with various animals attached to them. These polystrate fossils then cannot be buried over thousands of years, but it has to be rapidly for them to be able to be preserved in such a state. And then you can look at it from a standpoint of, of various plants, where you have plants, even with DNA, in various parts of the world that shouldn't be there. And some of them within these layers that should not have existed within those particular layers. Well, then you have marine life, like these whales in the middle of a desert. You have whale fossils. In fact, this picture on this side is a whale graveyard in western Egypt in their desert. And this picture is of a man with a, I believe he called it a sperm whale, up in the Andes in Peru. And of course, there's all kinds of other types of situations there, but you look at these things and you wonder how they get there. And the standard answer by many is that, well, you know, when, when God made the heavens and the earth, when he made the earth, he put all these things already in the rock, put them already on the mountains or in the desert. Could God have done that? Well, God can do whatever he wants. Absolutely, he could have done that. But did he do it? I personally believe the flood is the answer. And I have reasons why I believe that, and I'll share that in just a few minutes. But you have these fossil records all over the world. You can go to various parts in this country, whether it's in Nebraska, up in Michigan, anywhere, and you'll see all kinds of marine fossils. In every continent, you'll see various marine fossils at very high elevation. Just phenomenal to see these things. And so we have it even in our own country. Here's one I thought was pretty interesting. This shot is an area where they found over 500 giant oysters. I mean, they look like boulders. Maybe from where you're standing, they look like boulders. What's interesting about oysters, and I don't know much about oysters, even though I lived in Hawaii, I just ate them, <laughs> is that when they die, they open up their shell. These shells are closed meaning they were killed instantly. Something had to have happened for them to all have their shells closed, and that would fit a situation in which you have catastrophe, if you will. And so what you have is situations like these all over the world that you can go to. There's so many locations. They just don't make the, the daily news. But what this means is there was immediate death. 
and just fascinating stories like this. This is in the Andes. Can you imagine? You're two miles above sea level. And either God chose to put it from the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth, or there was a flood that took place. And with the currents and what have you, this is where the remains of various creatures reside. This is the burial ground. If there's another option, I'm sure someone will creatively figure, figure that out. But to me, this is, is very much supporting the fact that if there was a flood, this is what would happen if there was one. And so you have these kinds of things. Now, that said, I want us to note that I believe various things. Number one, about a flood. And then number two, it's worldwide. For various reasons. Number one, I believe that when God created the heavens and the earth, when he said after each day, you know, it is good, I believe it was. And after he created man, it was very good. I believe that as a result, there was no death before sin. And I know that there are those professing Christianity believing that death and decay took place before sin entered this world. For me, does it fit the storyline smoothly? Does it fit with what I see here? doesn't fit with the pangs of the earth and what have you. The experience of what death was. When, when Adam and Eve were told by God, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Some believe that, well, they would have known what death was because of death, seeing decaying animals and what have you. I don't believe they understood until after they were separated from God, that very separation, and, and actually knowing that death entered this world through sin of man. And that that was this indictment uh, on mankind when you look at Genesis 6-8 through and how bad man was. And for Peter and for Jesus to refer back to the floods to talk about impending judgment. Imagine if this were a localized judgment that God is going to come, Jesus is going to come back and maybe just our known world, maybe the Western Hemisphere, Jesus is going to come back. I just don't see that in Scripture. And so that parallel I don't see from a local flood to a worldwide impending judgment when Jesus returns. It just doesn't seem to match up. It doesn't flow well. And some of you might think that it does, and you might have your reasoning, but I'm telling you, I believe these are evidences to show not just a worldwide flood, but a greater picture that when you read the Bible, you can trust it to be true. And there are so many other things we could have gotten into. You can uh, probably Buddy Payne went into carbon dating, you know, and and look at the half life of what goes on through carbon dating, so that you can know and know when the breakdown takes place and know how many years to calculate and so on and so forth. But bottom line is, when all said and done, you're going to have people still walk away going, "I still don't believe what you have to say." But I was asked to give evidence for why we can have trust in the Scriptures as the Word of God. And I believe these are just a small sampling of them. And I believe that there are going to be other passages that we can look at that would show evidence that when we look at God's Word, and God's Word says, here's a place named Damascus or Caesarea, or here's a place called Bethlehem, or these people known as the Hittites, or you're talking about various kings. They all exist. They're all true. I apply the same logic to this when I studied with Mormons. And I asked them, I said, do you know the Book of Mormon? You want me to believe in it. 
but I can't even believe the things that are found in it. When you talk about these locations, I cannot find them. There's no history. Zero. And the Bible is just every day something new. More evidence being found. Night and day. When all is said and done, you're still going to get people who mock. Just as Peter said in Second Peter 3, verse 3, in the last days there will be mockers. There are people that laugh at a simple lesson like this. They laugh at what I call evidence. And they say, you don't know anything. You need to sit down and close your mouth, Mitch. I'd be happy to sit down and close my mouth and listen to what others have to say. But when I'm asked to show evidence, I believe there are evidences. And I believe they're very clear to me. I believe it's like Romans chapter 1, verse 18, following that I can see with my own eyes and I can declare the handiworks of God and I can give Him thanks rather than, as verse 18 through 25 talks about, individuals that would not give thanks to God and bow down and worship our Almighty Creator. And so those who are doubting or those who are genuinely seeking answers, I'm hoping that this helps you. But in the end, either you're going to believe the Bible as the Word of God or you're not going to. I don't care how much scientific proof we have. All I know is, you know what Jesus said in John 20, after Thomas was doubting, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. How wonderful. I've never seen Jesus. Have you? And I believe he existed. I never saw Jesus die, nor raised from the dead, but I believe he was. I've never seen Christians give up their lives who walked with Jesus, but I believe they did. I'm asking you, is that the kind of faith that you have? I mean, all these evidences are good. I think they're helpful, and I think they just basically affirm the things that we already believe in. But unless you have that kind of faith that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are lost in your sin, according to this book that I believe in, and I'm willing to give up my life preaching this book. I'm willing to, to leave my wife and my children proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And I want you to do the same. And if it takes you looking at worldwide evidence, if that's as shallow as it be for your faith, and, and even, I'm not minimizing your sincerity on that, I'm saying shallow from a standpoint, this is where your faith needs to be. So that's what I'm comparing your, your faith to. Man's wisdom, not in the same as God. This is the wisdom from God. You need to believe in